Today we're finishing up our series that we've called, Can I Ask That? And we've done it for the last several weeks. And we're going to finish today. Each week I've answered a question that had been asked when we gave out the cards to you all. And you asked questions. And today I'm going to ask the number one question I received. The question I received the most. And it wasn't the exact same question, but it centered around the same theme. And it was basically, how do I handle A particular relationship. How do I deal with someone in my family that is causing strife or problems? How do I handle someone at work that is difficult to work next to? How do I handle a situation that I found myself in? How do I handle a husband or a wife that is difficult? And I won't, for the sake of marriages, I won't let you know who those were that wrote those. Good. Appreciate you got that. But how do I handle difficult relationships? And here's the truth. Relationships are a major part of our lives. Amen? They're a major part. And sometimes those relationships can be challenging. And when they are, they impact our lives. When we have difficult relationships, they impact our lives. They can discourage us. They can anger us. They can scare us. They can depress us. They can drain us. And the truth is that All of us have relationships in our lives that are um, more time-consuming, more difficult than others. And everyone in life has relationships that challenges them. I was reading this week about George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright. He was a guy that apparently did not get along with people very well. There's one story about a time he sat next to a pompous man at a dinner party one evening. And after he listened to him for a time period, he could not even imagine about lots of useless information. Shaw looked at him and said, between the two of us, we know all that there is to know. And the man said, well, you see, what do you mean by that? And he said, Shaw said to the man, well, you seem to know everything in the world except that you are a complete bore. And I know that. He believed in straight talk, all right? Shaw had an ongoing feud with Winston Churchill. And one time when he was opening a play, he sent Churchill, as was custom, to send the prime minister, the leader, a a chance to come to the play. He said, I want to invite you to my play on opening night, and you can bring a friend if you have one. Churchill wrote back and said that he was busy on opening night, but he would be there on the second night if there was one. And some of you will get that this afternoon. Okay. Here's the truth. Sometimes relationships are difficult because people are different. And what I've discovered in my life, I'm pretty good with who I am most of the time. And if someone's different than me, that makes it difficult. Right? Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. That's right. Now, we know that difficult people cause us difficulty in life. But the truth is, most of the times, difficulty comes because people are simply different. They think differently. They act differently. They want to, to, to do things in a different way. They, they see the world in a different understanding. And all of us have people in our lives that when we look at it and we step back and we think about it, that if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that our lives are a little more difficult because they're there. 
I started to ask today, how many people here, and have you raised your hands, have someone difficult in your life? But I decided just to let you answer that inside your own brain. And all God's people said, I'm afraid there would be pointing and not just hand raising. But the truth is, we all have what John Orberg has called sandpaper people in our lives. People that rub us the wrong way. Someone else has called them extra grace required people. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? Y'all seem to be tracking pretty good with this one. You like, this is one I got to dig into. You know what I'm talking about. Here's what I want to tell you today as we kind of get going. We're going to get to Ephesians 4. We're going to talk about how to handle those situations. But what I want you to know from the very beginning is this. And this is from the very lips of Christ. That sometimes the people we most want God to remove from our lives is the person that God intends to use the most in our lives to grow us into the person he wants us to be. Now, sometimes when I say something like that, your mind starts spinning. Go, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. You're not talking about my guy. You're not talking about the person I'm thinking of. And what I want to suggest today is not only does God allow difficult people in our lives, but I'm going to go as far as to say in some cases, he places them purposefully in order to do some things in you and through you that would not happen without them there. And you say, well, wait a minute, why? I mean, some of you, when I say that, you have a sinking feeling. There's a picture of someone in your mind, and you're thinking of a difficult person, and you're like, listen, they drive me nuts. They, they are personalities. They just don't mesh. By the way, you realize that if you think that about someone else, there's a good chance that other people think that about you, right? I mean, I'm confident that I am that to some of you in this room. That was a little too sarcastic of a no back there. And so why in the world would God allow these sandpaper people in our lives? And I'll give you three quick reasons. We're going to look at some scripture from Jesus and then we're going to dive into Ephesians 4. And the quick reasons are this. Because how we treat difficult people shows a testimony of what's really in our heart. Secondly, difficult people cause us to grow in ways that we could not do it on our own. And third, and most importantly, that Jesus would say again and again, the most distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers is their love for those that would not and could not love in their flesh on their own. I mean, listen to what Jesus said. These are his words from Luke. He says, but I tell you, you hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who expect repayment, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But, he says, love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You say, yeah, but that's Jesus. You realize Jesus dealt with difficult people, right? When they were so difficult to him, they eventually had him killed. 
And what's interesting is that if you were to ask some of the religious leaders of that time period, you know who they would have said would have been a difficult person? Jesus. He made those people go nuts. He drove them crazy. He loved Gentiles. Jews didn't like Gentiles. He loved Samaritans. Jews didn't like Samaritans. He treated women with respect. He treated slaves, lepers. He went into the lives of Roman centurions. He purposely moved through society with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He just kept doing things they could not understand. He loved the unlovable. And what he's describing in this passage from Luke I just read is that the most distinguishing mark of a genuine follower of Jesus is not how we love people that are easy to love or love us it's how we love people that are not easy to love that are hard that are difficult he says when you love somebody that's outside of your circle that's when you're showing what i've done in your life when you love someone that's against you someone that irritates you someone that hurts you someone that distresses you Love them, he said. So the easy answer is, how do we treat those people in our lives that are difficult? We love them in spite of their difficulty, or more so, we love them because of their difficulty as Jesus loved us. Can I tell you something? Nobody will ever be as difficult in your life as you were to Jesus. And he loved us anyways. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're there already, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to start right there at the beginning. If you're not, I'll give you a second to get there. But Ephesians chapter 4, we see the outworking. I talked about Ephesians last week and that in Ephesians you have this unbelievable this thing where in the first three chapters he gives us an understanding of what the theology of the Christian life is, the doctrine of the Christian life is. And then as soon as chapter 4 comes, or we're going to start today, he switches and begins to talk about, so how do you live that life? It's an overall picture of what's happening here. He says, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And because we believe that, because of what Christ has done for us, then we live this way. In fact, he ends chapter 3 with one of the greatest prayers that has ever been prayed, that has ever been written down. And he ends that by saying to God, who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he says, and because of that, I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord... I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you ever seen. We're going to stop right there. Because the reality is that what happens from chapter 4 through chapter 6 is the outworking of that phrase, to live worthy of the calling you have received. He has told them in chapters 1 through 3 that they have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ because of His salvation that is brought to us through His death on the cross and His resurrection. That we have been given the same power in our lives that Jesus had at the resurrection from the grave. He is telling them that because of Christ's great love for us, because of his unbelievable mercy for us, because of his unbelievable decision to give his life for us, that we have been given more than we could ever ask or imagine or believe. And he's praying that their eyes would be open, that their hearts would understand, that they would understand the height and the depth and the width of the love of Jesus Christ. And he says, as you do that, my prayer for you then is that you would live worthy of the calling you have received. And so what follows for the next three chapters is how to live worthy of the calling. And he gets real practical. 
I mean, in chapters five, he talks about household codes and how to codes, how to live with um, how parents and live with kids and husbands and wives at work and employer employee relationships. He talks about spiritual warfare. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts. But I find it fascinating what he begins his whole discussion of a life worthy of the calling of Christ with. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now we're going to do a little English here, a little grammar, and I know y'all always get so excited when we do that. But in that sentence, in the original language, there is one main verb, and then there are participles that are added onto it to tell us how to do the main verb. And the main verb is bearing with one another in love. The main thing he says, so think about this. Paul is about to write three chapters of how we live out our calling that has been given us in our life by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his salvation for us. And the first thing he says, the first command he gives is bear with one another in love. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling and then literally with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bear with one another. If you dig into that word, bear with one another, just a little bit, it's interesting. Because the word literally means hold yourself back from one another in love. And let's be honest. When we're dealing with difficult people in our lives, sometimes we have to hold ourselves back. I know some of you would have amen there, but you were holding yourself back. That's all right. I mean, with difficult people in my life, we have to hold myself back from what I really want to say. With difficult people in my life, I have to hold myself back from what I really would like to do. For difficult people in my life, I have to hold myself back from those cutting remarks that are sometimes funny. I just want to say them. They, they zoom right to the brain, right to my tongue, and it would be easy to speak them. The scripture says that to be worthy of the calling, to live a life like that, we must Hold ourselves back. Now that's what it means literally. The concept there means to bear with people, to put up with people. It literally is the concept that you put up with people, endure people that irritate you, frustrate you, make you not want to be around them. It means literally, kind of, or figuratively as they put it together with the phrase, tolerating and looking beyond their idiosyncrasies, their personalities, their weaknesses, their mannerisms, the differences and styles that bother you. So how? That's the command, bear with one another. Well, fortunately, he gives us three ways to do that. And the first one is, he says, we need to bear with them in humility. The word literally means lowliness. In the New Testament, it has the idea of having an accurate view of yourself. I love the way Rick Warren defines humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not having you at the forefront of what is matters in your life all the time. It's not thinking too high. It's not thinking too low. In fact, genuine humility is not really thinking of yourself at all. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say, don't do anything out of 
emptiness or vain glory or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, treat other people. And he doesn't even say as if they're as important as you are. What he says, treat them as if they're more important than you. And here's why humility is such an important part of how we treat people that are difficult in our lives. Because subconsciously, oftentimes, when we think of people that are difficult with us, as we think about them, we naturally think less of them than us. If you're honest, you would say that they have some sort of personality defect that just doesn't match with you. If you evaluate them on a sliding scale, you would say they just don't know as much as you, or they're less savvy than you, or they're less spiritual than you are. They just don't get it. And so as you think that subconsciously, it comes out in your actions and you naturally think, well, at least in this area, I've got it together more than they do. And so anything that comes out of their mouth, you say, well, what do you expect from them? What do you expect them to do? We get in the habit of judging before anything even happens, of passing judgment on their opinions before they even open their mouth. And we are going to bear with them. The first step we have to understand is that it requires humility on our part. See them and treat them as people of superior value than yourself. See them first and then treat them as people of equal or superior value. And here's the reason you can do that. If you're having trouble, I don't know how I could do that. Here's the way you can do that. Think of them as the person that God has put in your life in order to bring something about for you, which would make them some sort of teacher in your life. And no matter how difficult it might be to deal with the present situation, that God is creating something out of it. There's a classic uh, Christian book by Andrew Murray called Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. And I thought the picture on it was interesting because it was a picture of a shell with a pearl in it. Now, most of you in the room probably know how a pearl is formed, right? The shell is tightly closed, but somehow particle gets inside of there and begins to disrupt, bother, agitate. An animal produces a secretion that covers over it again and again and again and again and again as it deals with it again and again and again and again. And eventually, through that process, something absolutely beautiful is formed. Here's why you can, in humility, look at other people that are difficult in your life and realize that God may be using them. Is that many of us in this room have prayed for patience, have prayed for for understanding, have prayed for wisdom, have prayed to love more. And the way that God works is he doesn't magically give that to us. The way God works is he puts us in situations where we get to practice that again and again and again. And as you show humility in those moments, he changes you. The first thing he says is we deal with them in humility. The second thing is we deal with them in gentleness. The idea of gentleness, which is a fruit of the spirit, is using the power that you have to love and not control. A word that's similar to that is the word meek, and that means power under control. I always think about the story of Alexander the Great, who had his greatest horse was named Meekness. It was the most powerful horse you could imagine, but when Alexander rode him, he was completely under the control of Alexander the Great. And he said, this is my horse, power under control, Meekness. 
Jesus was the most powerful to ever walk the earth. And yet instead of using his power to force people to obey, he was meek and gentle. What does gentleness look like in your life? Just a few things. First of all, it means avoiding the necessity to be right. I'm going to say that again. Avoiding the necessity to be right. Second Timothy chapter two. Listen to this. If you there, if you want to know a verse for our time, that's not going to be on the screen. So you write it down. Second Timothy chapter two. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes. Again, reject foolish and ignorant disputes. Because you know they breed quarrels. Do you know how many relationships would be better if we ignored, rejected, foolish and ignorant disputes? The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. Part of what happens when we get into a place with a difficult relationship, when we're not humble, when we're not gentle, is we think we have to be right. We have to prove that we're better. We have to prove our point of view. And as a result, we end up in foolish and ignorant disputes. Gentleness means avoiding the necessity to be right. Secondly, gentleness means never retaliating. I'm not getting any easier, all right? I'm just letting you know. This is 1 Peter 3, 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Man, that's hard. That's hard. When someone does something to you, you want to get back at them. You want to repeat it. You want to go after them. You want to say something. When they insult you, you want to go, yeah, but what about you? And the problem is Peter doesn't even leave it there. He could have left it that with don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. He could have left it there. But then he says, instead, pay them back. And you go, oh, I'll pay them back. That's not a problem. He says, instead, pay them back with a blessing. Not what I had in mind. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Can I tell you, we are to follow the model of Jesus who went to the cross like a lamb led to slaughter. He didn't retaliate. I heard a preacher this week talking about Jesus, um, about his restraint on the cross, his restraint in those moments that led to the cross. Because the reality is, Jesus had the power to stop it at any moment. You think about what he says on the cross when he is looking at the people who have falsely condemned him, falsely accused him, are gambling for his clothes, are going against the very son of God. And he is hanging in agony and pain after being beaten within an inch of his life on the cross, looking out on them as they're literally the soldiers are throwing the dice for his clothes. This pastor said, can you imagine the restraint? What would you have done? This pastor said, I said, all of you are mice. And your wives are now cats. And I mean that literally. Retaliate. It says in scripture, we're never to retaliate. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. 
We avoid the necessity to be right. We never retaliate. We release them. That's what it means to be gentle. We give them to God. Matthew 5, 44 says, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We give them to God. We pray for them. We extend grace to them. We don't go get others on our side to go against them. We release them from it and say, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to offer my forgiveness to you. And I'm going to live in a way that releases you to God. I'm going to pray for your salvation or pray for you to come to understand what's going on and how you're hurting me or how you're being difficult. But I'm going to give you to God. And then the last one is we live redemptively. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's what it means to bear with them with gentleness. It's not just that we don't retaliate. It's not just that we refuse to have to be right. It's not just that we release them to God. We then live in such a way to be tenderhearted and kind to them always. And then finally, we bear with them with patience. I saved the easiest for last, right? Well, maybe not. Humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love. Love is, do you remember the first one? Patient. The word there means to put up with a lot. Endures a lot. Christ has been the most patient with us. And he says model that. Refuse to allow your irritation and frustration to erupt into negative thoughts and feelings and comments to or about them. You bear with them with patience. Patience shows a maturity in trusting the Lord. That he is working the situation out. So the question is, how do you deal with difficult people? You bear with them in love. How do you do that? With humility and gentleness and patience. How are you doing with that? When I asked you earlier about difficult people, see, it's easy sometimes to get to the end of the sermon and remove it from the beginning. Because I know I talk a lot sometimes. But at the beginning, when I talked about difficult people, my guess is that most of you in this room, somebody came into your mind. So how are you doing with that person? Maybe they're coming back to your mind or maybe you said, I ain't allowing it because I don't want to think about them in this way. How are you doing with them? Are you bearing with them in love? Are you showing humility and gentleness and patience? Let's pray together.